0: This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Second Peter, Introduction. Sunday I have to call on you once more. <laughs> Read the first line in second Peter. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Simon Peter. Right. And for those of you who have a study Bible, is there a marginal note? Have a look. Anyone? Simeon. Right. Now, translators use the word Simon. But the word really is Simeon. And I would say this marks genuineness. When Simeon says, that really is the name I like. Okay, let me explain. When Saul was at the gates of Damascus and Jesus stopped him, Jesus said, Here comes, listen. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is how it is in the Greek. But everywhere else you read Salos. So Paul's name as a youth was Salos among his playmates. But his mother called him Saul. Saul. Ron, do you have a second name? Ronnie. No, that's right. his middle name. Lavoie. Lavoie. Did your mother ever say when you were about four or five years old, Ronald Lavoie? No. When mother uses the full name, you obeyed. Right? That was mother's voice. Mother spoke. And you had the full name. Oh, Ronnie. For you. Come here. Now, if Saul has the name Saul, Peter had the name Simeon. And where else do you find the name Simeon? In Acts 15. When James begins to speak and says, Our brother Simeon has said. Now, we make it Simon because that's common. Simeon, that is so old-fashioned. goes back to Old Testament times. We think of the old gentleman in the temple when Jesus is <coughs> dedicated. Hmm. Right. Okay, that's the first thing I'd like to say. Simeon. The second thing i like to say is that the word servant is used. Simon, Peter, a servant. Yes, he's been saying this all along, that he is a servant. In fact, he is saying to... The elders, I am a fellow elder with you. And then he says, an apostle. And once more, I put it on the board, remember. An apostle is an ambassador. So he is speaking with apostolic authority. That word apostle rings true. This entire epistle comes from my hand. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what else can I say? Did Peter rely on others? Well, maybe we are unable to say so Peter relied on the services of Silas in writing his first epistle. He may have relied on someone else and an assumption has been made because of Clement of Alexandria who mentions one of Peter's scribes whom he calls Glossius. If you want to put it down G like in George, L-A-U-C-I-A-S. The reason why we say he used an amanuensis, a scribe, is that the style is different. The style is entirely different in 2 Peter. Now, you have to go through the Greek and all that, and I don't want to take time out for that because it becomes too technical. But the fact is that Peter speaks and recalls what has happened. This is Peter's last epistle. He's about ready to depart from this life, as he tells us. Read with me verse 12 of chapter 1. So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. 13. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside. He's an elderly gentleman as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And now he refers really to what is recorded by John in chapter 21. And then he says, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. I am writing this epistle to you so that you have it. Number one. saying, this is my life, it's coming to an end. Here's my testimony, or actually my testament. Verse 16 through 18. Peter is actually saying, if you have difficulty believing that I am Peter, now let me give you an incident That happened and I was present namely on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus with Moses and Elijah were on top of Mount Tabor and John, James and Peter were there and there was a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now read with me chapter 1, verse 16 and on. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him on the sacred mountain. And now verses 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, But men spoke from God as they were carried, lifted up, carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed, Paul tells us. Scripture comes by way of the Holy Spirit who uses men to write overrule sin so that what Scripture is is nothing but the Word of God. That's how Peter begins his first chapter. First chapter is about himself. Now, having said all that, I have to say a thing or two about the writing of 2 Peter. Some scholars are of the opinion that in 1 verse 15, which I read to you, there's an indication that a forger was at work. i read it again, one fifteen, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. See, right before it, Peter says, I soon put it, my life, aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And at that point, a Forger took over and he wrote, and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. Well, the text itself is too vague to determine whether the author is referring to a doctrinal statement he has just noted in the previous verses to a letter that is now lost or to a letter that he intended to write but did not. We are unable to determine the nature of the instrument designed to refresh the reader's memory. In other words, Scholars who think this way are reading an awful lot into verse 15. Now, a second point to disprove apostolic authorship is the author's statement in 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. The assumption is that the pseudonymous author, the forger, wants to link his letter to Peter's first epistle. Well, our response is, if Peter is the author of both letters, the readers would expect him to make the remark, this is my second letter. The argument then, rather than disproving, Peter's authorship of Second Peter affirms it. A last objection: these writing, writings, scholars say, were not incorporated into the canon until at least two decades after the first century. Uh, Peter died during the reign of Nero, and therefore he could not have written Second Peter. That's also specious. For example, what proof do we have that Paul's epistles were not accepted as scripture until the last two decades? Paul himself testifies to the fact that his letters possess divine authority. Paul himself is saying, and I'm quoting now 2 Corinthians 13, verse 3, that he has proof that Christ is speaking through him. And Paul also commends the Thessalonians to receive his teaching, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God. So, if God inspired Peter, may we not assume that it is Scripture? Well, then there are a few things that we can say about a date. And the debate concerning the time when Peter wrote his epistle centers on 3 verse 4. Have a look at 3, verse 4 of Second Peter. I begin reading at verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Our Fathers have died, and therefore you're now talking about another generation. After Peter. In short, this letter could never have been written in the 60s. Let us say 67, when presumably Peter wrote the second epistle. But... Let's go to another passage where you read our fathers died. Those who have fallen asleep is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The same concept. And Paul responded by saying God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. We assume that the question concerning the passing of loved ones Surface repeatedly in the Christian community during the middle of the first century. In other words, our fathers died. Could just as well have happened in the mid-60s if Christians lived in the 50s and into the 60s and some of them passed away. You can say our father died. And... The concept our fathers also shows up oh, in Hebrews chapter one verse one. And you read Hebrews chapter 1, one. In the past God spoke to our fathers, translated as forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Common expression. In short, this doesn't help one bit. Then we go on to style. Yes. First Peter is smooth Greek, excellent Greek. Second Peter is not. The wording is tilted, the style is abrupt. The meaning of many passages is obscure. The use of the definite article is infrequent. The occurrence of words that are found in 2 Peter, but not in the rest of the New Testament, is extensive. There are 57 words which are unusual in this short epistle of three chapters. So, how do we account for it? Well, I already talked about Clement of Alexandria who suggests that Glossius helped Peter. And I think I can go along with that quite well. It was rather common for Paul to use a scribe. Now if Paul does it, may Peter not do it? He does it in regard to 1 Peter and we can expect also 2 Peter. Good. How does the epistle relate to other books? 1 Peter's structure and the structure of 2 Peter is similar. What I want you to do now is on a sheet of paper in the left hand, put down first Peter, in the right hand of the right side of the page, you put down second Peter. Okay, under first Peter, you put down one verse 10 through 12,, 10 through 12. And then on the second Peter, you put down one, verse 19 through 21. In between you write inspiration of the Old Testament. Under first Peter you write down one verse two and under second Peter one ten. And in between you write doctrine of election. Under first Peter, you write one twenty three. And the 2nd Peter 1, verse 4. In between, you write Doctrine of the New Birth. And the 1st Peter, you write 2, verse 11 and 12. And the 2nd Peter 1, verse 5 through 9. You write down Need for Holiness. On the 1st Peter, you write down 3, verse 19. 2nd Peter, 2, verse 4. In between, you write, sinful angels in prison. And the 1st Peter, 3, 20. And 2nd Peter, 2, verse 5. In between, you write Noah and his family protected. Under First Peter, four, the verses two through four. Second Peter, two verse ten through twenty. In between, you write immorality and judgment. And the 1st Peter, you write 4, verse 7 through 11. And the 2nd Peter, 3, verses 14 through 18. And you write, exhortation to Christian living. And the 1st Peter, you have 4, verse 11. And the 2nd Peter, you have 3, 18. In between, one word, doxology. Now, there you have the similar (coughs) structure of the two epistles of Peter. And it supports the probability that one author composed the two letters. The subject matter in Peter's two epistles is different. (coughs) We know. We already dealt (coughs) with the first chapter in which Peter makes it clear that he is the author, talks about his own life, (coughs) he talks about his experience at the time of Jesus' transfiguration, (coughs) and also... He talks about the Word of God. In the second chapter, Peter deals with false teachers and their destruction. In the third chapter, he deals with eschatology, the return of the Lord. Now, there are differences, obviously. And from my study of the speeches of Peter in the first half of the book of Acts, and Luke is recording almost verbatim what Peter said, Peter was not the most fluent in Greek. And his syntax doesn't always make sense. I'm not talking about spelling. And <laughs> I'm sure that Luke sat there writing with a bit of a smile on his face. This is how Peter writes. This is how Peter talks. And then you go to Second Peter and you say, yes, it makes sense. I hear the same voice. Now, don't take it ill of Peter He was only a fisherman. He didn't go to the Jerusalem Seminary. He didn't have an MDiv. He may have had a sixth grade education, and that's where it stopped. But God used him in spite of his difficulties. And therefore, when I look at the similarities, I become more and more convinced. Yes, Peter is the author. He should have had the help of Silvanus. (laughs) He did not. And so, here is the second epistle. Now, did Peter rely on Jude? That's only one chapter. Because the content of Jude is virtually the same as 2 Peter chapter 2. So, did he depend on Jude or did Jude depend on 2 Peter? Or did they have a common document? Well, there are a number of things that we can say. Is Jude prior? Well, let's apply that rule once more, that the shorter reading most likely is the original. And then which of the two is the shorter? The answer is Jude. So that probably is the basic text. Now we have also noticed that Peter borrows from James. So if he borrows from James, may he not borrow from James's brother Jude? The answer is yes. And next, in his epistle, Jude has references to apocryphal literature. In verse 9, he talks about the assumption of Moses, that is, Moses' burial, and Satan disputing this. We'll come to that after a while. And then he also, in chapter... Excuse me. (laughs) Verse 14 and 15. There is no chapter. Verses 14 and 15, he quotes First Enoch, And then we come to 2 Peter chapter 2. You can almost see where Peter left these verses out. Jude included apocryphal material. Peter hesitated. Why? Because Jesus, throughout his ministry as recorded in the four Gospels, never refers to Apocrypha. And the apostles never refer to the Apocrypha. I'm talking about the Old Testament Apocrypha now, not the New Testament Apocrypha. And then you have also the pseudepigraphal literature. such as the gospel. Well, there are many others. Let's just leave that out now. A close examination of the text of 2 Peter 2 verse 11 reveals a break at the place where Peter deleted the reference to the apocryphal book. 2 verse 11, yet even angels although they are stronger and more powerful do not slander do not bring slanderous accusation against such beings in the presence of the lord and right there you can see there's a break so conclusively the text shows that the source of second peter is the epistle of jude now others disagree and say, no, no, it should be the other way around. After all, Peter is an apostle, Jude is not. So the apostle comes first, and Jude comes second. Well, that's not all that convincing in view of the case, Peter borrowing from James. And if he borrows from James, he can also borrow from Jude. And then you have the argument and this is found in Jude chapter uh, once more Jude 17 Jude 17 and you read But dear friends remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold Now what do you do with that? Is there a lapse of time? The apostles, plural, seems to be out of place when we know that Second Peter was written by one apostle. So, with that in mind, as an objection, I still hold to the priority of Jude. And then others say, well, there may have been a common document. Peter and Jude both were acquainted with the document which was read, written in Hebrew or Aramaic and then was translated into Greek both by Peter and by Jude. And then, of course, you have differences. True. Okay. Okay, the problem is that the apostles are in the plural. And as I have here in my commentary, let me read it. Uh, I'm going back to Jude 4. Jude 4. Read with me. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. So we're talking about long ago. And then you read in verse 17, But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. Now both passages appear to indicate a lapse of time. And the expression, long ago, is weighty. But we face the objection that proof for making Jude 4 and Second Peter to refer to Second Peter is lacking. And then comes the last statement, which I gave you. And we must admit that the plural apostles in verse 17 seems out of place when we know that Second Peter was written by one apostle. So, this long ago, and apostles, these are all arguments that just don't hold water. Okay. Do they have been aware of other, I mean, other epistles, like Paul's epistles, and people that, I mean, is that the, what you're playing? Is it the reference to apostles' coral? the question is, what do you do with the plural apostles in verse 17? And my answer is, this is a common statement about the twelve apostles. Jude is a half-brother of Jesus, a full brother of James, and was acquainted with all the apostles. And he is referring to the the group, the twelve. John does the same thing, and John is writing in the year 90, 60 years after Jesus ascended. And he merely says, the twelve. And that's it. Good. I continue and ask the question, who received Second Peter? And the answer is rather short. Second. Peter. Peter was written to the people mentioned in First Peter chapter one, verse one, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then in Second Peter chapter three, verse one, the writer says, "This now is my." second letter to you so we have the same audience but not every scholar interprets the phrase my second letter as a reference to 1 Peter some commentators are of the opinion that this phrase points to another letter peter composed but which is no longer extant <laughs> well that's quite an argument again it doesn't hold water We must point point out that we should resort to the use of a hypothesis only when all other attempts to explain the phrase have failed. So I'm not at all impressed with an argument that says my second letter refers to something else.
1: Okay,
0: there are a number of other things I could say. For example, the similarities between 1st and 2nd Peter in both letters. The writer rouses the readers from spiritual lethargy. You find the same tone of voice addressing the same people. Peter exhorts the readers. In both epistles, to be mindful of the judgment day. Okay, what is the purpose of 2 Peter? The purpose. Peter writes two letters to the, to the church in Thessalonica and two. Pardon me, excuse me, excuse me, correct. Paul writes two letters to the church in Thessalonica, two to the Corinthians. Likewise, Peter addresses two epistles to the Christians in Asia Minor. Paul displays spiritual interest in the believers in Thessalonica and in Corinth. Peter, similarly, as a spiritual father, writes to the same people. And he alerts the believers to the dangers of false teachers who have infiltrated the Christian communities. And by the way, there are a few of those around yet. Those that influence and what is so discouraging at times is the influence of the Jesus Seminar. May I mention one name? John Crossan. John Dominic Crossan. An Irish priest, priest, uh, priest in the Roman Catholic Church is a flaming liberal. And he will be on television if you give him a chance. He will be in the newspapers, the religion section. He will speak in churches and gather a crowd of a thousand people and he is giving, given a standing ovation. But he denies the virgin birth. He denies the miracle of Jesus, miracles of Jesus. He denies the resurrection. He denies the ascension. Jesus' body is outside Jerusalem in a grave somewhere because he was just a man, a sinful man just like you and I. Peter described Jesus Christ as divine in 1 verse 1. Note how he puts it. Simon Peter... A servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. The righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. God. There's the divinity of Jesus. It refers to the knowledge of God in verse 2, and of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Peter, Jesus is not only divine, but also Lord and Savior. Here are a few references. Jot them down. 1, 11, 2, 20. 3, verse 2 and 18. Jesus is Lord and Savior. In his second epistle, Peter reveals that heaven and earth will be destroyed by fire and the elements will melt. In chapter 3, verse 10, and verse 12. In fact, no other book in the entire New Testament has the explicit details that Peter provides for the end of the universe. The elements will melt and this earth will be destroyed. Does that mean gone forever? And now God creates an entirely new earth out of nothing? And the answer is no. This is what he says in verse 10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. It doesn't say it ceases to exist. Go on to verse 12. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. And then it says, But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. The restoration of this earth will take place. How do I know? When Jesus was raised from the dead, his body was raised. Not a brand new body, but Jesus' body. The marks in his hands, his feet, and his side. And the disciples recognized him. And then Paul writes in Philippians 3, verse 20, and likewise our vile bodies will be raised. Similarly, in other words, when your and my bodies are raised from the dead, they'll be the same, but perfected. I'll have all my hair, can throw these glasses away, get some more teeth, I'll be on the way. (laughs) But it will be my body and somebody else's. If then the resurrection teaches me in Scripture that our bodies are going to be raised, I may also assume that the earth will be restored to perfection. Good. Continue. Because believers are elect they are told to cultivate Christian virtues. They're established in the truth and they will never fall away. He says as much in 1 verse 10, 1 verse 10 and 12. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. Verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Peter reassures the readers of God's protecting care. And he illustrates this by means of a reference to Noah, the preacher of righteousness, and Lot, who is called a righteous man. Have a look at chapter 2. I begin reading at verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness. There it is. And seven others. If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly? If he rescued Lot, now start counting the words righteous. A righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. Three times, Lot is called a righteous man. And now if you go to Genesis chapter 19, and then you read about Lot. And he chose the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because, well, there's a lot of grass in that area. And Abraham, you can take the plains, okay? And then we read about Lot and the two angels coming to his house. And then we read about Lot fleeing the city of Sodom and his wife turning to a pillar of salt. And he continues with his two daughters and then you read about incest and that's the last you read about lot in the old testament when you read all this and you ask the question is this man saved we turn him down no and peter says he is a righteous man three times in succession yes god saved him, may I add, by the skin of his teeth. (laughs) As a firebrand plucked out of the fire, these are words from the epistle of Jude, the smell of smoke and fire was still on the man. He just made it. Now, the question about Noah, a preacher of righteousness. The word kerux is used, preacher. But notice there is a qualifier. And the qualification is a preacher of righteousness. And there you have the content. When you go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, we also read about preach. And you have the verb, caruso, there's no qualifier. There's the difference. See it? The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.